Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. It's really lovely to be able to be with you all this morning. Um, My academic research is in the New Testament, but that's not what I'm going to be talking to you about today. What I want to talk to you about is art in St Paul's Cathedral. Art old and new, and how we relate to it in the 21st century. When you have a look at St Paul's, if you were to go in um, now, there'd be more people than that, but it would look roughly like that. Um, If you go into St Paul's, it's very easy to imagine that it's simply always been that way. This is St Paul's as Christopher Wren designed it in the early 18th century. That's what it looked like when it was built, and it never changes. But you'd be wrong if you thought that. And one of the really interesting things, I think, about being in a building like St Paul's Cathedral is to recognise that actually, over time, the building changes. It shifts and changes with each new generation of people who come. And as the person who now looks after art in the cathedral, we are then in a really interesting situation of saying, how do we relate to what is there that is old? And how do we think about bringing in what is new? How do those two, old and new, relate to each other? And that's what I want to reflect um, with you on today. So I want to begin by showing you how the cathedral has shifted and changes, changed over the years. So we have an old photo of St Paul's Cathedral. And this is from the middle of the ni- well, kind of late 19th century, kind of one of those really, really early photos. Um, And what you might notice, if I just draw your attention, if I flick back between the two screens, you will notice various things. Firstly, um, one's in colour and the other's in black and white, but don't notice that. That's not the most interesting thing. Um, Firstly to notice is that there is um, a memorial um, in the cathedral that is not there in this older photo, although to be honest I think it probably was there um, and they've just kind of got the angle slightly different. Um, Also quite important to notice however is that there are no mosaics. The thing that you, if you know St Paul's, you will know that um, they are very very famous for the mosaics right up at the east end. If you can see the gold and the the pictures in the old St Paul's, they were not there. And one of the really interesting things to notice is that when Christopher Wren built the building, um, just in case you don't know, just to remind you, St Paul's Cathedral um, was built, burnt down during the Great Fire of London, and the great Sir Christopher Wren, whose anniversary of death it is next year, his 300th anniversary, rebuilt it. And it was finished in 1711. And when it was finished in 1711, um, it looked roughly like this. And one of the really important things to bear in mind about Christopher Wren's original building 
was that it was meant to be very, very plain. It's built out of Portland stone, which is a very white kind of stone, and it was meant to, you were meant to go in and see absolute plainness within the cathedral. It was meant to communicate light and space and plainness. And the old St. Paul's Cathedral, the one that was burnt down um, in the Great Fire, was absolutely jam-packed full of memorials. So Christopher Wren built his new cathedral and said, this new cathedral is not going to have any memorials in it at all. So for the first nearly 100 years of its life, St. Paul's Cathedral was simply a space which was light, it was airy, and it had no additional material in it at all. And then, in um, the late 1700s, they began to put in memorials. And the first four memorials are really very interesting. Because whenever you change a policy, one of the things that's very interesting about the change is it tells you something about the people and why they wanted to change. So if you go into St Paul's Cathedral today, you will imagine that all the memorials are about war and those who fought in the empire. You might imagine that, but actually you'd be wrong to think that. And let me tell you about how it developed in a moment, but just to draw your attention to the fact that actually we have more memorials to artists in St Paul's Cathedral than we do to soldiers. The only thing is the memorials to soldiers are bigger than the memorials to artists, so they look more impressive. But actually in terms of quantity, we have more to artists. And in fact, the very first memorial that was inserted into the cathedral in 1795, sorry, go that way, there we go, was to someone called John Howard. And John Howard was a prison reformer. And they brought that into the cathedral in 1795. And I'd just like to draw your attention to John Howard's dress um, because it becomes interesting um, in three slides' time. But just notice that John Howard is dressed as though he is a Roman citizen. He is dressed in classical dress rather than in his contemporary dress. And John Howard was a great philanthropist and prison reformer, and he was the very first memorial to be inserted in St Paul's Cathedral. Very quickly afterwards, only a few months afterwards, um, we had Samuel Johnson, um, who was put in in the same year. Um, and notice again, he is also wearing classical dress. Samuel Johnson is the author of The Great Dictionary, so again is a wordsmith um, and somebody who was very particularly interested in words and how they developed. Then, four years later, a third memorial was put into the cathedral, and this is to someone called William Jones. And at this point, the memorial started to shift. And that's why it's interesting to notice the time when they're put in. So our first two, um, we have a philanthropist and someone who cared about prison reform. Then we have somebody who is um, writing a dictionary and very interested in language. And then our third person, William Jones, was somebody who was deeply involved in the empire. And really interestingly, this third memorial was paid for by the East India Company. So at this point, you begin to see the external influences on the cathedral. So politics 
it began in a political reflection, but you begin to see the politics beginning to impinge on things. Notice also that he's still wearing classical dress. Until we get to our fourth memorial. And just to remind you of the dates, he was put in in 1799, then 1808. Um, we have our fourth and if you are able to go to St Paul's Cathedral and see these, these are the four that are around the Great Dome. Um, the Great Dome, and we have a big circle underneath it, and they're at each, I was about to say each corner of the circle, but you know what I mean. Um, they're around the edges of the circle. And um, Joshua Reynolds makes up our fourth, our fourth of the memorials around the dome, put in in 1808. Notice his dress and how it's changed. Um, we have, I'll just go back to the beginning, someone very clearly in a Roman tunic. Then we have um, someone much more in a more um, toga style. Then again, also a toga style. And then Joshua Reynolds is in um, 19th century, early 19th century dress. So you will notice that they've begun to shift their understanding of what, how they're depicting people. And interestingly, from then onwards, most of the people who are depicted in the cathedral are in contemporary dress rather than in classical dress. The first three were held up as great classical heroes, but this fourth person um, very much more kind of in his modern context. So the first four memorials, therefore, give us a beginning of a sense of how the policy about inserting memorials and art into the cathedral began to grow up. It was, on one level, a little bit haphazard. They were put, people were put in who represented issues that people considered to be important. So we have prison reform, we have dictionaries, we have somebody involved in the empire, and then Joshua Reynolds, who was the very first president of the Royal Academy. So he is our first artist to be depicted in the cathedral. But what is really important to recognise is that from then on, war began to be depicted much more commonly in the cathedral. And possibly the best example of this um, is the Wellington Monument. So the Wellington Monument is to Duke Wellington, who died in 1852. Um, you will notice the difference in scale between this and this. Now, by the time we're halfway through the 19th century, there is an absolutely enormous memorial um, to um, Duke Wellington. And actually, it was a memorial that took the longest to build. So it was started in 1852 and only finished in 1906. In fact, various stories were told of the artist who were, was um, commissioned to write it that actually it might have killed him off in the process. He died in the 1870s. He didn't, in fact, finish the entire memorial. But now you can begin to see how actually the memorials are now much more focused on the empire and on art. And that begins to raise for us some really interesting questions um, to reflect on about how do we, in the 21st century, begin to engage with a political opinion which now quite significantly differs from our own. Um, the cathedral, all in all, has over 500 monuments. Like I say, there are more um, art to artists than there are to soldiers, but nevertheless, the overall impression of St Paul's Cathedral is that it is a memorial to the empire. 
And so one of the really important and interesting questions to reflect on is how in the 21st century do you respond to a cathedral, to a space which is really concerned about political principles that the vast majority of us who worship in the cathedral week in, week out, no longer subscribe to? How do you do that? And I'm sure you are fully aware of the many um, kind of reflections, debates, um, fights, you might call them, about contested heritage. How do you engage in this particular context? And how do you engage when actually it is quite difficult to do anything about it? Um, one of the things that we have been trying to do in the cathedral is to respond creatively, to recognise that actually between the polarised positions, um, it is possible to have an interesting conversation. So one of the things, one of the links that I gave in advance of this lecture, which you might be interested to go and have a look at, is to the Pantheons project. The Pantheons project is a co-project that exists between St Paul's Cathedral and the Art History Department of the University of York. And it grew up as initially simply a cataloguing exercise. So the art historians have spent um, about three years cataloguing every single memorial that exists in St Paul's Cathedral. So if I tell you that the catalogue exceeds a million words, you will understand quite the extent of the academic exercise. They've had a look at both the subject and the artist for each of the memorials and worked out when precisely when the memorial came into the cathedral, what were the concerns that affected the construction of the memorial, and then actually how the artist sought to depict the person involved. Once it is finished, and it will be launched in January next year in its complete form, it will be an amazing contribution to understanding memorials in this kind of space. And I commend it to you enormously. I'd love to be able to say, go on it now and you will be able to see it in all its glory. It's not quite finished. But one of the things that they will be doing, and as I say, it'll be worth looking at once it's completely finished, is that they will be doing an interactive map to show you at what date different memorials came into the cathedral and what part of the world those memorials represent. So in terms of being able to understand the memorials, it's going to be an enormous, um, great contribution to our thinking. But of course, that's not enough. Just simply being able to describe the memorials themselves doesn't give you everything that you need in this context. What you need is something more. In the 21st century, we need to think about how we respond to the monuments. And one of the things that you will know about the contested heritage debate is that it represents a vast spectrum of responses. From people who say we should take them out, think of Colston in Bristol, um, take them out and throw them into the sea is one end of the spectrum, to you must never touch them under any circumstances and leave them exactly where they are at the other end of the spectrum. Um, in a place like ours, neither end of the spectrum works. So what you have then to do is to work out how you occupy a middle and more nuanced and reflective space that engages with the memorials, that tells the stories that lie behind the memorials, and then says, how now, in the 21st century, do we respond to them? So the Pantheons Project does half of that. 
The Pantheon's project gives you um, the first half of the debate, which is this is the story that lies behind. But there is still quite a long way to go. And one of the things, what we've decided to do at St Paul's is have a range of responses. So one of um, the projects that we've been doing is called 50 Monuments in 50 Voices. And what we've done is we've invited 50 people from all sorts of different walks of life. Some are artists, some are theologians, there's politicians, calligraphers, um, have I said politicians? Politicians, all sorts of different people. And each one is invited to respond to a monument. Some of them have done it through artwork, some through poetry, some through a written response, some through music. Um, and we've asked them simply to respond, given them no guidelines about the response. How do you, in the 21st century, respond to this? And what we're hoping is that once we've got the full 50, and um, we're nearly there, um, the, we're about at 42 or so, so if you have a look at the 50 Monuments in 50 Voices website, you'll be able to see all of them. What we're hoping is that what it will do is begin to help other people to do that reflection, to say, how do I respond to these monuments in the 21st century? Not saying that there is only one way of responding, but you can respond in all sorts of different ways. And what we're hoping is that we'll begin to allow people to think through their own responses about how we respond. We're also working on different other projects as well. There's a project um, which we're calling St Paul's Chelsea, which is with the Chelsea College of Art, and we're inviting a whole range of art students to come in and engage with the um, memorials, and then to do a piece of artwork that expresses their response to the memorials. And again, if you search for St Paul's Chelsea, you'll be able to find some of the initial responses there. We're also doing a community engagement pro project. So we are inviting a Bengali community to come in and engage with some of our East India doc um, company um, memorials and see what they want to do to respond. So my view, and um, unfortunately there isn't time for questions at the end because I'd love to know what your view is, but my view is that actually the problem with the monuments um, in somewhere like St Paul's Cathedral is they represent a single voice. They represent the single voice of those who are from empire, in power, with wealth, wealth and influence. And one of the best ways to respond to that is to have many voices, to listen to the very many voices who are otherwise not listened to in that particular context. But there are all sorts of other ways of responding as well, um, just to give you a sense. So I'm going to move on now from monuments into... Um, thinking a little bit more about art in the cathedral. So as um, you will remember this picture, this is the picture of St Paul's Cathedral before the Victorian era. Now, when Queen Victoria came to visit the cathedral in the late 19th century, she is famously said to have said, St Paul's Cathedral is dull, cold, dreary and dingy. When you have a look at that picture, you might be tempted to agree with her. Um, it really was not the most aesthetically pleasing place to be. And so, as a result, uh, they commissioned a range of mosaics. And as I said at the start of the lecture, the mosaics are some of the most characteristic and important, iconic parts of St Paul's Cathedral, directly addressing the dull and dreary part of um, the, the Queen's reflection. 
And so throughout the entire east end of the cathedral, um, you will find um, various mosaics who were all designed by someone called William Blake Richmond. Um, you have depictions of Christ, of angels. You have lots and lots of animals and um, various different trees. And that began to change the nature of the cathedral. Um, as I said, we, we imagine often that the cathedral somewhere like St Paul's um, is a static place that never, never changes. But just if I just go back to the picture again, contrast that to this kind of artwork. And you'll see that he's actually dramatically transformed the space into a place that is much warmer, um, much more rich in its iconography, a place of greater reflection. So that's one of the things that has really shifted and changed in the um, identification of the cathedral. But then there is more, and uh, the more is what I now want to go on and talk to you about, is what I've been talking to you so far about is the space itself, how the space looks and how it feels when you enter it. So you've got the space that is shaped by the Portland Stone, then you've got the space that is shaped by the memorials that were brought in in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Then you've got the space that is shaped by the mosaic, all of the spatial bits of the cathedral. But in addition to that, there is also artwork, individual artwork in the cathedral. And the individual artwork shapes a particular space, not the entire space, but a particular space. Probably one of the most famous pieces of art um, in St Paul's Cathedral is Holman Hunt's Light of the World. Um, although, if you were to go and see it at the moment, you can't, um, just in case you thought, oh, I'd go and have a look at it. It's not on display at the moment, because we've had to move it, um, and we are in the process of moving it. But the one thing about change in cathedrals is that it takes an incredibly long time. I've been working on it for a year. We've now found a new space for it. Um, it'll now take another six months while we actually mock up designs and have a look at it, and then eventually we will move it. So don't come and see Light of the World at the moment. But... Holman Hunt's Light of the World um, was donated to the cathedral in 1904. You may be aware of it as a really um, iconic painting. He painted the first um, painting in 1853, which he donated to Keble College, Oxford. He painted another version of it, um, which he, she then gave to the Manchester Art Gallery. And then he became unhappy by how they were being displayed. So he painted a third version, right at the end of his life, which he then gave to St Paul's Cathedral. Um, this is 1904. It's often called a copy. And it's a really interesting question about whether it is actually a copy, because Holman Hunt painted it again. Um, he painted it, of course, with the same subject matter. It looks very similar, but is it a copy? Discuss, really. Um, it's another version of the same picture, slightly bigger than the others, but the same um, iconography exists ar around it. I won't talk very much today about Holman Hunt's Light of the World. Um, there are various issues around it which are both inspiring but also problematic. Um, one of the things that is very interesting is, is a lot of people who come from the Christian faith find this a profoundly inspirational um, painting. But there are other ways in which, like the rest of St Paul's Cathedral, it is quite imperialistic. Um, and therefore, I have a very mixed reaction to the Light of the World. Um, I also, frankly, 
I was about to say, just between ourselves, between ourselves and the 3,000 people who might be watching online, um, I don't like it at all. Um, but um, it's one of those that, if, for, for me, it's not my kind of artwork. But that's what gets you into really interesting questions about art. Because art, as you will all know, is profoundly subjective. How many people, what proportion of people need to like a thing before it's allowed to be a piece of artwork in a public space is a really interesting question. Think about the debates around the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. Think about other questions where you will have people say, actually, this should not be allowed in this particular space. Personally, I would get rid of the light of the world, but I would probably be on my own in that particular area. So it's an interesting question about um, whether, how many people need to like something before you should have it in a space. Remember that as a question because it comes in in a moment. But since 1904, then there became quite a moratorium on the introduction of new artwork. There's still memorials coming into the cathedral, but actual art didn't, um, wasn't brought into the cathedral until a key moment in 1982. Um, and it will give you a sense of my aesthetic when I say I don't like this. I love this. Um, so therefore, you'll understand um, where I'm coming from. Um, only my view. This is by Henry Moore, and it's called Mother and Childhood. And it's a really beautiful statue I mean, what we call the Minor Canons Isle in St Paul's, which gives you a sense of Mary and child. It's very impressionistic. Um, you have to spend quite a long time with it, but it's utterly beautiful, I think. And again, gives you something of a sense of um, what he was trying to do. Um, other, I can't tell you about all the art that we've got in the cathedral, but I just want to draw your attention to some other key bits which are quite important. Um, uh, the, have I got... Yeah, I have to do it in the right order. Um, since um, Henry Moore... Since then, there was quite a lot of temporary art brought into the cathedral, which I'll show you in a moment. Um, but the next big installation, the really significant moment in the cathedral's history in terms of artwork, is the Bill Viola installations. And again, if you just compare Holman Hunt, Henry Moore, then the Bill Viola art installations are completely different again. They are video installations. And I I would, if we had more time, show you the videos, but it would take about 15 minutes to see them all, so I can't. Um, but what we have are two video installations. This is called Martyrs, um, and the idea is to reflect on the way in which Christians through the ages have suffered for their faith. Um, and you've got um, Earth, so it's earth, wind, fire, and water depicted in the panels. And what you have is this kind of quite evocative reflection on the nature of suffering and people who um, have suffered for their faith throughout the centuries. This is called Martyrs. Um, incidentally, the server is broken on this at the moment, so also not quite available. Wait about a month, and this one will be back online again. And then we also have Mary. So Mary is um, on an, another panel just by the Henry Moore statue and is a reflection on the nature of Mary and her relationship with um, her child. And one of the things that is lovely to do, if you have the time to do it, is the Mary video installation is right next to the Henry Moore mother and childhood. And you could look at the Mary installation through the Henry Moore statue. 
you have the time to do it, I recommend it to you in highly if you're interested in art, because the two pieces speak to each other very profoundly. One very static and impressionistic, the other a video piece that rolls on through a 15 minute, minute video, and you get a sense of dynamism with a, in conversation with a static um, image, you get impressionism with something very hyper-realistic. It's a very interesting thing to stop and reflect on. But as with all art, as I've been saying to you so far, um, all of these evoke reactions in people. People will love or hate them. By and large, um, people, some, a lot of people really love Holman Hunt. Quite a lot of people love Henry Moore. Um, fewer people love um, the Martyrs. Um, and fewer, again, love Mary. So quite interesting how people react to it. And one of the things that I would like to do during my time at St Paul's is actually to take a detailed study of how people react and what is the cause of their reaction, um, about whether they enjoy it or um, relate to it well. So what I've been doing is presenting to you the permanent art that exists in St Paul's Cathedral that begins with the memorials, moves on with the mosaics, um, and then we have some various bits of permanent um, artwork, like Holman Hunt, like Henry Moore, like the Bill Violas. There's one final piece, which I just want to show you quickly before I move on from that. And um, this is found in the crypt of the cathedral, and it's a picture of St. Martin of Tours. And it's a relatively modern piece of artwork um, from 2018, and just represents a different style again. What you have there, in case you don't know the story of St. Martin of Tours, St. Martin of Tours is renowned for meeting, he was a Roman soldier in the 4th century, and he met somebody um, who was homeless and had no clothes. And so Martin of Tours took off his Roman cloak, sliced it in half with his sword, and gave half to the beggar um, and went on his way. And this is a story that is famously told of him. The question I'm always wondering about is whether the beggar was entirely pleased to have half a cloak, um, but probably half a cloak is better than no cloak. So, um, the, but the image um, is kind of a very iconic one, and uh, people reflect on it quite a lot. So, there are different dynamics that are required when you're bringing in artwork into the cathedral. And I've referred a few times already in this talk to um, the question of how people relate to art. Do they like it? How, what proportion of people need to like something for something to come into an iconic building like St Paul's? And on top of that question, we need to ask an additional question. Because St Paul's Cathedral is very, very obviously not the National Gallery. It's not Trafalgar Square. It's not a simply public space. It is a place of worship. And what function does art play in a place of worship is an additional level of question you need to ask on top of the, do people like it or not? So one of the questions that we're regularly wrestling with on our art committee at the cathedral is what function does art play in people's worship? And what, if people don't like something, does that affect their ability to worship or not? Um, it takes us all the way back to memorials, where I would say more strongly than simply people don't like it. What does it feel like? What difference to worship do you encounter if you are worshipping next to something that presents a political principle that you violently disagree with? What does that do to your worship? 
What do, does it do to your worship if you are worshipping alongside a piece of art that you just don't like aesthetically? It's not to do with politics or about your principles. You just don't like the look of it. What difference does that make? What difference does it make if you are worshipping alongside a piece of art that you absolutely love? Does that make a difference to your worship? And I'm not going to give you an answer to that. I think it's a really interesting question to reflect on and explore a little bit more. But alongside the permanent art we have in the cathedral, we also have temporary art, art that comes in and goes. And I just want to show you a few pieces of art because they are quite interesting. So um, in, um, I forget how long ago it was now, I think it was the 1990s, um, there was um, a piece of artwork from Yoko Ono, um, which was called Morning Beams. And you can see that what she's done is a, um, an installation um, that begins to kind of give you a sense of the space. She was playing with the space in the cathedral. There's also an Anthony Gormley piece that is in the geometric staircase. Um, if you don't know the geometric staircase, but you do know the Harry Potter films, then you have seen our geometric staircase, because it's the um, staircase that they go up to the astro astrology tower um, to, um, in the Harry Potter films. But um, Anthony Gormley put in this kind of beautiful piece of artwork into the geometric staircase. And then we have our, the final piece of artwork that I want to show you this morning. Um, and these are right at the top of the nave, just near the dome in um, the cathedral. These are the Jerry Judah crosses. And uh, this raises uh, some very, very interesting questions. Um, whenever I am saying goodbye to people at the end of a service, every time somebody will ask me about these crosses, what they symbolise and what they're there for. So here is a very interesting conundrum, which is where I'm going to leave you um, at the end of this lecture. So these were commissioned in 2014 to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the First World War. And the idea of them is, so Jerry Judah, who um, is a very famous artist, wanted to reflect on the ongoing suffering and pain caused by war. So the white crosses are to bring to mind the Commonwealth graves and the very many white crosses that exist in the Commonwealth graves. And what he did is he built a replica of a Middle Eastern city. It was not an actual city, it was a kind of a mythical city, um, but he built a Middle Eastern city. At the time that he was doing it, the Syrian war was in full, um, it was at its height. So therefore, I, he had somewhere like Aleppo in mind. He built a representation of the city, and then he blew it up with gunpowder and affixed it to the cross. So the image that the cross portrays is one of a static memorial to someone who's died as a result of war, with, alongside it, the ongoing suffering and pain caused to civilians um, by that war. And the two crosses on either side of the top of the nave I find profoundly powerful as a, a, a cause for reflection, for prayer. And one of the really interesting things is we're in a conversation about taking them down, which I will tell you about in a moment. Um, but I'm really glad we haven't, because they've suddenly come... Um, back into important reflection because of the Ukraine war. Um, there is something about a war happening in the world that brings these pieces of artwork really to the fore. But back to my question, 
How many people need to like it for it to be an important piece of artwork? We think these are very significant pieces of art, but a whole load of people really hate them and keep on saying, when are you taking them down? Um, and that gets you right into the heart of art and places of worship. Um, very powerful for some people, absolutely loathed by other people. The reality is we do need to take them down because they are temporary. They were put in in 2014 for the 100th anniversary of the First World War, so should have been taken down in 2018. But the people who loved them, loved them so much that they said, please, can they stay a bit longer? So we extended it to 2021. You will note it is no longer 2021, and still they are up. Um, and that gets you into one of the really interesting complex questions about art, old and new, in cathedrals. And allows me to end where I began. The thing about cathedrals is it's very easy to imagine that how the cathedral looks today is how it has always looked, and more importantly, how it will always look. If you are involved in bringing art into a cathedral, what you are doing is combating that belief because what you're saying is actually I'm going to change how it looks by bringing this in. Um, and there are various people who say um, that is a terrible thing. The cathedral has always looked this way. And so one of the things that our committee, the art committee, has to do is to persuade people first and foremost that we are allowed to take the crosses down and replace them with something else. The interesting question for us is with what shall we replace them? How do you begin to make that decision? And that's where all the questions I've been mulling with you all the way through this lecture come together in their absolute most concentrated form. Should artwork reflect the principles, political and theological, that we hold to today? Or should they note something from the past, think memorials? Should cathedrals be a place where worship gives you inspiration and um, gives that sense of transcendence? And can artwork help you in that? But if that sense of transcendence goes against some of your principles, what, and when I say your, I mean the range of people who come to the cathedral, how do you begin to combat that? One of the things I didn't tell you about the mosaics is it caused a massive fury at the time that the mosaics went in because there were some Christians who thought that Christian places of worship ought to look plain and sparse. That's what they were for. So as soon as you put mosaics in, you change the nature of the space. Um, whose view takes precedence when you're thinking about this kind of thing? How many people have to like a piece of art in order for you to think it's a powerful thing to put in? What proportion of people need to think that? What kind of art actually will give you a sense that this ought to be here in the cathedral? And one of the fascinating things about the Jerry Judah crosses is that has changed over time. To begin with, various people were less sure about the crosses. Now more people are more sure about the crosses, ironically, just as about we're, we're about to take them down and change them for something else. Um, and that gets you into the very heart of what I've been talking about. Art, old and new in the cathedral. Cathedrals are living spaces. They shift and change, even though they don't look that way. 
How you help them to shift and change is one of the really interesting questions. And one of the really key things that we've never quite got to the bottom of, which I'm desperately trying to work on at St Paul's Cathedral, is what are the principles that allow you to make those decisions? Let's say I'm going to take this and replace it with that. Um, or I'm going to bring this into a space. At what point do you go, St Paul's Cathedral is officially full? There will be no more art coming into this cathedral. Um, do you then take out some artwork? As you will gather, I could spend the next hour asking questions, um, not necessarily giving you answers. But I hope that gives you a little bit of a flavour of some of the inspiration, but also some of the complexity of art in a space like St Paul's Cathedral that has both art old and new in it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.